Understanding Food Through Taste Early autumn of 1961, a 37-year-old housewife and mother named Jean Nidech was thought to be pregnant by a woman she knew. You look so marvelous, her friend said, and for a sweet moment, Nidech basked in the compliment but her friend kept talking. When are you due? Nidech was not pregnant, but because of her appearance at the time, she was 5-7 feet tall and weighed 214 pounds, which marked her as obese. She had tried every diet there was, and every one of them worked, she always lost weight, but then she would gain it all back and more. The problem was that she could only stop eating for a while, not for a long time. She loved food too much. The beginning of her slimming journey was when she met a very slender instructor, she made a decision right there, but as it is being said, it is easier said than done. The instructor handed out a sheet of paper with a list of foods the women were allowed to eat. These, of course, were not new to Nidech. Once again, she gave up those foods she loved so much, and every week went back to the obesity clinic, and each of those weeks, she lost only two pounds. To her, this was progress but to the gorgeous slender ice cream, soda-inducing instructor it was not. We eat for one reason, because we love the way food tastes. Flavor is the original craving. The slender, ice cream soda-inducing instructor thought differently. She looked at Nidech and said, what are you doing wrong? And as gallantly sensitive, perhaps even abusive, as that might sound, the instructor was right. The truth is Nidech wasn't following orders, at least not completely. It was the cookies. She was feeding on them in secret. Nidech couldn't bear it any longer. She had to get her cookie secret off her chest, so she phoned six fat friends and invited them to her home and confessed. Her friends were supportive. She had a right to eat those cookies, they said. They did stuff like that all the time. One friend hid chocolate chip cookies in the cupboard behind dishes. Another hid snacks behind cans of asparagus where no one would see them. All of them confessed that they, too, got up in the middle of the night to eat. Toward the end of the meeting, something seemingly insignificant happened that would change the course of Nidech's life. One of her guests said, Jean, can we come back next week? The next week, they brought three more fat friends. The week after that, four additional fat friends joined them. Nidech's solution to weight loss lay in collective willpower. Within two months, Nidech was down to 142 pounds. Group support is one of the effective ways to lose weight. Nature endowed us with our most sophisticated bodily system because it performed the body's most essential task, getting important nutrients. By manipulating our richest and most direct source of pleasure, we have warped our relationship with the fuel our bodies require, food. The Dorito effect, very simply, is what happens when food gets blander and flavor technology gets better. This book is about how and why that took place. It's also about the consequences, which include obesity and metabolic disturbance along with a love-hate cultural obsession with food. This book argues that we need to begin understanding food through the same lens by which it is experienced, how it tastes. Our problem is that we want to eat the wrong food. The longer we ignore flavor, the longer we are bound to be victims of it. This book is also about the solution. The Dorito effect can be reversed. Not only can we imagine a world where the food tastes better, and people eat less of it, we can also visit it. I have visited it, and the food, as you will see, is superb. The reason for the changing taste of food. One of the complaints we often hear is that nothing tastes the way it used to, but we dismiss it as the rose-tinted memory of times past or the result of failing taste buds. Food has changed. The change has been documented scientifically. 
and it is a story best told by chicken, which has become not only our number one source of animal protein, but is simultaneously the blandest and most flavored, the most Dorito-like, meat. Chicken's descent into blandness began precisely 61 years earlier, on March 1948, when 50 world-changing chicks pecked out of their shells at a hatchery in Easton, Maryland. Chicken of the 1940s was nothing like it is today. It was expensive by modern standards, and since chickens were often the byproduct of the egg industry, they came in different sizes. There are the broilers which were young and tiny, some of them weighed just a pound and a half, they are so tender that you can cook them under a scorching hot broiler. The friars came next, they were a bit bigger and less tender but still small. After the friars came the roasters and lastly, the fowl that is old hens that were so tough they could only be used in soups and stews. Modern poultry raising has done wonders in making it possible to grow a fine-looking chicken in record time, and to sell it at a most reasonable price but rarely does anyone in the country discusses flavor. If you are interested in price alone, you will often end up with something that tastes like the stuffing inside a teddy bear and needs strong dousing of herbs, wines, and spices to make it at all palatable. It's pretty clear what was happening. The chicken was getting blander. It needed flavoring. The chicken was turning into something that didn't even exist yet, a Dorito. By 1997, the chicken situation had gotten worse. With the emergence of the modern poultry farm after World War II, an updated joy of cooking stated, both the quality and safety of our poultry were compromised. Chicken has suffered the most. A year later, in How to Cook Everything, New York Times columnist Mark Bittman all but wrote the epitaph for chicken flavor, chicken leaves you in the same position you're in when you're cooking pasta, you must add flavor. In 1961, Julia Child and her co-authors stated that chicken should be so good in itself that it is a delight to eat as a perfectly plain, buttery roast, saute or grill. 37 years later, it was downright bland and essentially a blank slate. It wasn't just the occasional disappointing chicken that tasted like the stuffing inside a teddy bear. Now all chicken tasted that way, chicken blandness is intimately related to nutrition. Modern food may be the most compelling lie humans have ever told. There is a second part to this problem, youth. The high-energy diet, with its dusting of essential vitamins and minerals, enabled the production of giant babies. And meat from babies is bland. Veal is blander than beef. Lamb is blander than mutton. Suckling pig is blander than mature pork, which most people today have never tasted. Part of that is due to water, the younger the muscle, the more moisture it contains. But it is also due to aspects of animal biology that scientists still don't understand, in large part because very few of them are looking. If you are wondering why you've never noticed this thing called the dilution effect, why all bland food now tastes delicious, why people still want it despite its nutritional and flavor diminishment. It is thanks to flavor solutions. So much of the food we now eat is not only a lie, it is a very good lie. Modern food may be the most compelling lie humans have ever told. The advent of synthetic flavor Kestner was a spice buyer for McCormick and Company, a profession as glamorous as spying but with better food. In one week, Kestner might fly to Brazil to buy a few tons of cloves, the next he'd go on an all-spice expedition in the Mexican jungle and get swarmed by killer bees. He once held a private meeting with the king of Tonga. Kestner loved his job for two reasons, he loved spices and enjoyed the amazing places where spices grow. And among all those places, Madagascar was unique because of what grew there, vanilla, which Kestner calls the most magical spice, vanilla production was devastated. 
By 1976, Madagascar was producing less than half as much vanilla as it had the year before, and in 1979, it was down to a third. Back in his office at McCormick headquarters in Hunt Valley, Maryland, Kestner received a package containing photos of a great swath of cured vanilla beans being crushed by a steamroller. The government was destroying its buffer stock, and they wanted the price to go even higher. Needless to say, this was distressing news for McCormick. Vanilla was a major profit center. The company could make as much money off a few hundred tons of vanilla beans as it could from 10,000 tons of black pepper, the reason was its flavor. Everyone loves vanilla. Nothing improves cake frosting or lifts French toast like a few dark drops of pure vanilla extract. Vanilla is flavoring royalty. It's better than caramel, better than almond, and better than toffee. Everything about vanilla extract was perfect except for one thing, the price. Even under non-Marxist republic conditions, the stuff was expensive. Making it requires a lot of processing. The flavor industry has not forgotten about the tongue. The discovery of umami rivals vanillin for its influence on the food industry. It might be conceptually helpful to separate taste and aroma to understand how flavor works, but it is the combination of the two that we find so stirring. Without the mouth, food is nothing more than a fleeting scent. And without the nose, it's dismally simple. When a person eats bacon, receptors in the mouth sense saltiness, sweetness, and umami while the nose senses its sweet, roasty, smoky, porky volatiles, in mind, they combine to form a blend that is vivid and inseparable and deeply pleasurable. Bacon, vanillin may have been vanilla's biggest secret, but it was by no means its only secret. Vanilla contains hundreds of other aromatic compounds. Not a single one of these comes anywhere close to the dominance or likability of vanillin, and some of them don't smell very vanilla-like on their own. These notes include woody, rummy, smoky, and watermelon. They are, nevertheless, essential to the experience of authentic vanilla. They give it what flavor scientists refer to as depth, structure, body, and dimension. On its own, vanillin is a blast of sweet cotton candy, fun but simple, a good-looking dimwit. If vanilla is a densely layered classic novel, vanillin is a comic book. The author henceforth used the term synthetic flavor to refer to flavors engineered by humans and real flavor for flavor experienced in the context of a plant or animal. Why is this happening? Why are the seasonings we put on our food becoming more and more like the ones we put on potato chips? One popular answer claims we have finally thrown off the yoke of plain and boring vittles. We like food that thrills us, maybe even hurts a little, food keeps getting blander. We keep adding more flavors. Year by year, the food we eat is becoming more and more like Doritos. Food can be addictive as drugs. Jean Nidech had a word for foods so delicious they were especially hard to resist. She called them Frankenstein foods. They brought on a state of wanting so powerful that they became an uncontrollable monster. Of all the foods Nidech craved, none brought out her inner Frankenstein more than cookies and the most terrible cookies of all were the chocolate-covered marshmallow cookies known as Malomars. Nidech loved Malomars so much she would lock herself in the bathroom and feed on them in secret and then hide the empty boxes in the laundry hamper. Not everyone believes food can be addictive the way drugs are. Drugs are highly potent neurotoxins, while food is just, well, food. That's why this particular study was carried out, to demonstrate further the way the brains of people who can't control their eating. Their brains are like the brains of people who can't control their drug use. Food-addicted brains are not happy brains. Salt, sugar, fat, perhaps you have already been introduced to the demons lurking in the cheesecake, bacon, cake frosting, and ding-dongs. 
These are the evil, drug-like substances that bring on the destructive behavior driving the obesity epidemic. It does not have to be this way. We could live in a world where food tastes excellent, and the people who eat them are not fat. But nothing is going to change until we get beyond a fundamental mistake in our thinking about food. Pleasure may help explain why people are overeating. But the puritanical notion that deliciousness is sinful and that we can solve the food problem only by extinguishing the pleasure we receive from food is doomed to fail. The synthetic flavor might be the salesman in the fancy suit that sells our brains the calorie-rich fat and carbs we're eating so much of, but real flavor, the authentic version produced in nature is our only road to salvation. Our palates are out to kill us. The mere existence of Doritos, Cronuts, deep-fried Twinkie burgers, sizzle sauce, bacon-themed desserts, cheddar-smoked sausages, cheesecake, and all the other treats fed to those food-addicted rats in Florida, the fact that there is even such a thing as the Yale Food Addiction Scale, that 69% of Americans are obese or overweight, that the American Heart Association now recommends bariatric surgery as a viable option for patients who are severely obese, that Debbie continues eating certain foods even though I am no longer hungry four or more times a week, that five-year-olds are getting diabetes because they eat too much and that there is a plus-size coffin maker in Indiana called Goliath Casket would all appear to attest to one irrefutable fact. Our palates aren't just out of tune with our bodily needs. Our palates are out to kill us. Nutritional idiocy follows its own demented logic. Humans do not bumble through the world and eat the wrong food by accident. We like the wrong food. In laboratory experiments with sheep, humans have shown over and over again like sheep that they, too, form learned preferences for flavors, when they're paired with calories. We like the flavor of bacon, and cupcakes, french fries, Doritos, potato chips, ice cream, and pizza, because of the post-ingestive association with calories. Scientists have even witnessed these flavor preferences in action in brain scans. This is how the Dorito effect appears to be turning us into nutritional idiots, dilution, as real food becomes bland and loses its capacity to please us, we are less inclined to eat it and very often enhance it in ways that further blunt its nutrition. Are humans nutritional idiots? Our palates aren't just out of tune with our bodily needs. Our palates are out to kill us. Nutritional decapitation, when we take flavors from nature, we capture the experience of food but leave the nutrition, the fiber, the vitamins, the minerals, the antioxidants, the plant secondary compounds, behind. In nature, flavor compounds always appear in a nutritional context. False variety, we naturally crave variety in food, it's one of nature's ways of making sure we get a diverse diet. Fake flavors make foods that are nutritionally very similar seem more different than they actually are. Cognitive deception, fake flavors fool the conscious mind. A mother enticed by a Dannon Strawberry Blitz smoothie as an after-school snack for her 8-year-old child will taste it and reasonably believe the product contains strawberries, even though it contains none. Emotional deception, flavor technology manipulates the part of the mind that experiences feelings. Fake flavors take a previously established liking for real food and apply it, like a sticker, to something else, usually large doses of calories, creating a heightened and nutritionally undeserved level of pleasure. Flavor-nutrient confusion, by hijacking flavor-nutrient relationships, fake flavors, by their very nature, set a false expectation. A significant aspect of obesity is an outsized desire for food, one that very often cannot be extinguished food itself. By imposing flavors on foods without the corresponding nutrients, are we creating foods that are incapable of satiating the people who eat them? 
So many of the foods we over-consume, refined carbs, high fructose corn syrup, sugar, added fat, would not be palatable without synthetic flavor. We gorge on them because they taste like something they are not. Humans look just like livestock now. We achieve a state of buttery plumpness before we've even reached sexual maturity. We experience powerful cravings for food that is slowly making us sick. We are like parasitic wasps dropped out of airplanes, programmed to eat the wrong food. We aren't born calorie zombies, but that's what we have become. The discovery of the sweet tomato. Ten years after Harry Clay, a molecular biologist left Monsanto to dedicate himself to cracking the mystery of delicious tomatoes. He made a pivotal, potentially world-changing, but undeniably egg-headed discovery. Tomatoes make phenylethanol from phenylacetaldehyde, which they make from phenethylamine, which according to the author is made from phenylalanine. There was only one chemical on this list anyone generally cared about, phenylethanol, which smells like rose-scented perfume and has long been considered one of the most important flavor compounds in tomatoes. No one, however, had ever bothered asking just how a tomato makes its much-loved rose note. To Clay, this was a crucial question. If he could figure out how a tomato manufactures its flavors, then he could find the genes that control flavor production, which meant he could breed for flavor. And that's just what Clay did. Like a Victorian explorer searching for the headwaters of the Nile, he followed a tomato's rose note all the way to its source, an enzyme that converted phenylalanine into phenethylamine, and got the whole rose-scented ball rolling. At last, he had his hand on one of the levers that controlled tomato flavor. Getting to this point had taken a decade. It was a breakthrough. To Clay, at least. The tomato sweetness came six years later when Linda Bartoshik, a psychophysicist, who specializes in rating the intensity of experiences got accurate ratings on tomato experience. According to the author, the experience was as follows, bored in her office one afternoon, Bartoshik decided to run some statistical correlations on tomato data, and she almost fell off her chair. Some tomatoes, Bartoshik had found, tasted sweeter than they should have. There is nothing in and of itself unusual about a sweet tomato. But what made these sweet tomatoes special wasn't how much sugar they had, it was how little. The result was a revelation, tomatoes that taste better but have fewer calories. Clay and Bartoshik had discovered one of the tricks nature uses to make food delicious. Conclusion Flavor, as we will see, is the aspect of the human environment that has changed. The food we eat today still seems like food, but it tastes very different than it used to. Food has changed. The change has been documented scientifically. And it is a story best told by chicken, which has become not only our number one source of animal protein but is simultaneously the blandest and most flavored, the most Dorito-like, meat. Try this, one. Avoid synthetic flavor technology a single can of Coke, a bag of chips, squeezable yogurt tubes, or fast food meals will not reprogram your palate and doom you to a future of extreme obesity. But each time you consume human-made flavors, you're tricking your brain, or, worse, the brain of a child. The more you do it, the greater the consequences. The less you do it, the less you'll like food like that in the first place. Read the ingredients. 2. Avoid restaurants that use synthetic flavorings. Three. Eat herbs and spices 4. Eat dark chocolate and drink wine and craft beer 2. These foods don't prevent or cure disease all on their own, but they are the mark of palates in tune with good food. Think of them as gateway foods to a healthier palate. 5. Eat real flavor in nature, flavor never appears without nutrition. No morsel of food should pass your lips before you have asked the following question, where did the flavor come from?
If it came from the plant or animal you're eating, keep eating. If it was applied by a human with a PhD in chemistry, put it down. <laughs>